Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Our guest today is Dr. Heather Coleman. Dr. Coleman is a historian of Russian religion whose research guides us back into Russia's past to see the importance of religion as a force for social change. And she comes at the topic from some surprising directions. For instance, take her book, Russian Baptists and the Spiritual Revolution, 1905-1929. When she learned that few historians had written about the importance of Russian Baptists during the rise of the Bolsheviks, she wrote the book herself. Ever since, Dr. Coleman has focused her work on the stories that give life to Russian religious history. Her more recent collection is Orthodox Christianity in Imperial Russia, a source book on lived religion. It takes the perspective of people on the ground, helping us to understand how everyday Russians connected to their church, their faith, and the powers at the heart of the empire. We love nothing better than the stories that give meaning to our lives. So Dr. Coleman's focus on the ways that Christianity was experienced beyond the courts and palaces of the Romanov Empire made her a perfect guide to the ins and outs of the church during the life of Grigory Rasputin. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 4. I'm Aaron Mankey. For Unobscured Podcast, I'm Carl Nellis, And today, I'm talking with Dr. Heather Coleman, professor of history at the University of Alberta. Dr. Coleman is a historian of Russia. She has written extensively on religion and modernization in Russia and across the Russian Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries. For 10 years, Dr. Coleman served as editor of the Canadian Slavonic Papers, and she directs the program on religion and culture at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. It's a privilege to be talking with Dr. Coleman today, so... Heather, welcome to Unobscured Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Well, we're so glad to have you with us. Um, Let's just start a little bit more about your work. Uh, In your words, you focused your scholarly work on religion in Russia. What originally brought you to this study? Well, I I actually uh, didn't think much about religion when I first started my graduate work. To be honest, in the 1980s, when I was an undergraduate, religion was was not just treated as though it didn't matter in modern Russian history. It was quite simply not treated. I just it was just not really covered, and so I didn't really develop questions about it. I was interested in understanding uh, how ordinary people experienced the utopianism of the 1920s, the early Bolshevik period, a period when the Bolsheviks were driving to trying to sort of create a new world. And um, for my master's thesis, I was exploring their, their programs for transforming women's lives. But in the newspapers of the 1920s, I found the Bolsheviks very, very anxious about the Baptists and and perceiving the Baptists as their competition uh, for organizing women. Oh, look, the Baptists have a choir. Maybe we should have a choir. 
And I started to think, well, now, isn't that interesting? Maybe religion did matter. Maybe it was a thing. And as I pursued my, it moved into my doctoral studies, I, I came back to this, this interesting observation. And I went into the library at the University of Illinois, where I was doing my PhD. And by miracle, they had a full run of a 1920s Baptist Ukrainian magazine. And I opened it up, and there was lively, public life, uh, an, an organization that was, that was experiencing a religious revival in the midst of early socialism. And I was fascinated. Um, and so that was part of it. But it was also timing. This was the early post-Soviet period, a period when there were all kinds of new archival opportunities. The archives that had been closed were opening up. But it was also a period of great religious revival. Uh, and I think that we had a sense that, that religion was an important factor in historical change, uh, something that historians in the, in the sort of middle of the 20th century had, had tended to disregard. Uh, but we saw it you know, in our own lives. We saw how religion was a lens through which individuals were making sense of the collapse of, of communism in Central and Eastern Europe. And so I think, I think that um, there were both intellectual reasons and, 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 and reasons of timing that brought me to this. And my professor said to me, when I said I wanted to do religious topic, oh, you'll have that phone booth to yourself. <laughs> but but when I got to the archives in 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 Russia, there were all kinds of graduate students who had all independently come to be interested in religious topics, and we'd all been told we'd be alone, and there we were together. And so uh, I've been working on this ever since. Mm. Wow. Well, and you focused on on those Baptists. Mm -hmm. um, can you say maybe just a couple more words about how your work on the Baptists in that early beginning, how has it continued to inform your scholarship? Well, um, yeah, so I, I mean, I came to the, the topic through the 1920s, but I then uh, discovered that there was a whole pre-revolutionary story that explained why they were such an issue in early Soviet Russia. Um, the, the state church and the uh, majority religion in Imperial Russia was the Orthodox Church, and Russia until 1905 was an autocracy with no constitution, no representative government. It was illegal to leave the Orthodox Church if you were Orthodox. Um, and yet I, I discovered through um, my, my research that in the last decades before the revolution, uh, the Baptist faith was rapidly spreading among ordinary people. Um, and these were people who, you know, government and church were used to thinking of as, as sort of true and patriotic Russians. But these people were embracing a Western form of religion, one that had egalitarian communities that elected their own pastors. And, and, and so these people's private religious choices became a big public issue in late imperial Russia. They became a touchstone for discussions about 
orthodoxy and Russian identity, about the relationship between church and state, about freedom of conscience, about civil society, about the democratic potential of the Russian people, about socialism. And, and I think that this, my work on religious sectarianism continues to inform my scholarship because it, it alerted me to the importance of religion in people's lives, the importance and in public discourse. Um, it, brought to, it brought me to an interest in orthodoxy, which I've now been studying for many years, uh, because it brought me to a realization that the church, which had been treated as sort of irrelevant, and, and we'll talk more about this, but kind of dead, um, was 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 not as dead as previously reported. Um, and and my interest in the relationship between religion and power in Russian state and society has been a thread that started with this work um, on the Baptists and has continued throughout my career. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Can you, from that point, tell us a bit more about what we know about the varieties of Christianity active across the, the massive Russian Empire in the late 1800s and early 1900s. You know, you say the Orthodox Church, of course, was the state church, the sanctioned church. Um, but what were the varieties of Christianity in such a, a, a big and, and multivarious place? Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the word empire is key here because, of course, it's there was a huge variety of Christianity in part due to huge ethnic variety. Um, as you just mentioned, the overwhelming majority of Christians were Orthodox, um, Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Georgians, small communities of Greeks and Serbs who lived in the South. They were all traditionally Orthodox, but there were also um, substantial numbers of Roman Catholics. We forget that, that, that much of Poland was part of the Russian Empire in this period and they were Catholic, uh, large numbers of Lutherans, especially in the, in, in the Northwest, uh, Finland, what are, what are now Estonia and Latvia were part of the uh, Russian Empire. Uh, there were lots of Mennonites in the South, uh, Arme the Armenian Apostolic Church, and then there were a wide variety of smaller groups that were characterized by the government as sects. So groups like the Duchobors or the Molokans, the Old Believers, um, Evangelical Christians of various sorts, uh, especially uh, the, the Baptists I just mentioned. So in addition to um, Islam and Buddhism and many, many other faiths, uh, there was a huge variety of Christianity. Hmm. Could you say a few words about the role of print culture in changing the Russian experience of uh, religion broadly during the late imperial period? Well, that's a, a good question, too. Um, the, the late, let's say, from, from, the middle, from the 1860s, when Russia began a period of, of uh, profound reform and transformation, um, and some loosening up of uh, government control, 
uh, and censorship in the 1860s, right up to the revolution, um, you see a, a real transformation uh, of the, uh, an expansion of the press, but also a sharp rise in literacy rates. Um, and these work together, of course. Um, you know, there's, this is a period of the, the great rise of the popular press more generally in, in the world due to technological change, um, uh, but also to, to changing literacy rates. And certainly, for example, uh, with the great reforms, you have the great expansion in public education. And so uh, in, you know, at the beginning of the great reforms, at the beginning of the 1860s, perhaps 6% of the population in rural uh, areas were was uh, uh, literate, but by 1917, um, over you know, they, over 22 percent of rural uh, women and 61 percent of urban women were literate, and and those rates were quite a bit higher for men, especially for young men. So we have a great expansion of of um, of uh, literacy, but we also have the development uh, of a mass circulation press. Um, this includes both um, sort of popular newspapers and, and magazines, but also just a lot of uh, short pamphlets and, uh, and, and other very inexpensive print products that are circulating. Uh, this is also a period of a great rise in the religious press. And this has a role, a uh, very, very important role in religious life in, in two ways. Um, first, the, the, there's a rise in uh, press that is published by the church for the church. And so there's a great flowering of uh, local diocesan newspapers and uh, magazines aimed at, uh, at parish priests, helping them to preach better, to try new techniques, to organize their, their, their religious lives of their communities better. But there's also a great rise of of magazines that are aimed at ordinary believers, um, you know, with stories of of religious uh, uh, people's religious experiences, with uh, ex explanation, you know, stories of people's pilgrimages, of people's miracles that people have experienced, with explanations of Bible stories and so on, lives of the saints in cheap editions. Also, um, in the in 1862, the uh, the first Russian translations of the gospel into ordinary spoken Russian in cheap editions became available, and these were widely distributed through the church networks in the beginning in the 60s and right through until the revolution. And uh, the, the Orthodox Church emphasized putting the Bible in people's hands. And so uh, there's a great distribution of the Bible. And what's important about this is that even though literacy rates remained low compared to many of Russia's European competitors, uh, they're still pretty good among young people and increasingly uh, good among young people. And that, and that meant that people who couldn't read still had access to this print culture because people who could read read to their 
their elders, read to their grandparents, read to their families. And so uh, this print culture allows the diffusion of common ideas and stories. It makes people more aware of um, you know, places they might go on pilgrimage and 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 better familiar with the Bible and with the stories of the saints and so on. Hmm. Thinking about that expanse of the Russian Empire, are there distinct regional differences in Russian religion, say, east and west of the Urals? Yes, so the Urals are the traditional dividing line between mm -hmm. European and Asian uh, R Russia. Um, uh, I think the the answer is yes. Um, it there's still we still actually have a lot of work to do precisely on this topic of the varieties of orthodoxy. Um, but I, I certainly can say a, a few words now. I mean, regional variety was actually, of course, normal. Um, it, it's really all across Europe in the 19th century. Uh, modernization means uh, leads to churches to seek a kind of a uniformity, and modern communications help to promote uniformity. But um, religion all across Europe remained very much regional and even local um, in its variations. So um, local areas will have preferred, preferred saints. They will have um, uh, hymns that they love. You know, they'll have local traditions. Um, Certainly, uh, I would say that Russian religion uh, was different east uh, of the Urals um, in, in Siberia. Um, you have um, much more uh, old belief, much more religious sectarianism, because um, the area east of the Urals was, was um, a place where 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 religious dissenters fled in the early modern period to get away from the power of the state uh, before state communications became better. Um, you have, of course, Islam, which, uh, which Christianity encounters uh, east of the Urals and south of the Urals. Um, you have uh, indigenous religion uh, in its great variety east of the Urals. Um, there's a kind of a frontier atmosphere. Uh, the official church infrastructure was much less developed. Uh, we shouldn't exaggerate this. In, in Western Siberia, we have um, ancient dioceses in Tobolsk, uh, Irkutsk, and so on, but or not even Irkutsk, Tobolsk. Um, but uh, but there's there's very little by way of seminary education and and so on. So so certainly um, there is much more. Uh, the church has much more trouble um, regulating uh, religious practice just because of distances and uh, variety uh, east of the Urals. Hmm. In the introduction to Orthodox Christianity in Imperial Russia, that that really helpful source book that you edited and and that you that you wrote the introduction for, you make a few comments about the idea of dual faith which is that Russian peasant Christianity was a kind of thin veneer over fundamentally pagan beliefs that the peasants somehow had. Um, 
And while you note that this was a convenient simplification for Soviet writers, mm -hmm. could you say a few words on the distinctions between the religion practiced by church authorities and popular religion as it was practiced by people? You know, maybe it's not a thin veneer over fundamentally pagan beliefs. And, you know, maybe that's the wrong way to simplify it. But if we're talking about maybe Siberian Christianity versus what's going on in St. Petersburg, how do we how do we see differences between the religion of the church authorities and, and popular religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that, um, you know, my generation of scholars has been uh, really trying to, to think in new ways about um, uh, this notion of dual, dual faith is somewhat prob problematic, but we can, we can, we can also of course say that religion is, um, is uh, certainly going to be different um, in different social classes and different uh, ethnic groups and different regions. And, and um, I think that what, what my generation has perhaps um, as exemplified in that Orthodox Christianity and Imperial Russia book has, has, has sort of combated is a view that, that just because um, uh, say lower class groups do things differently from what the church might prescribe, uh, we shouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that this is pagan and and uh, sort of um, anti-clerical, but because usually the the um, the the people who are doing these things believe what they are doing to be truly Christian and are not doing this in any sense of opposition. Um, certainly, ordinary people, uh, peasants, lower class people in the cities, um, often did things differently from how the priests uh, would have uh, liked them to to do things. So, for example, um, popular religion was was certainly much more um, uh, local, uh, much more experiential, much more oral. Uh, they people would would perhaps. Um, uh, uh, say prayers and get some of the words wrong and and then understand the reason for those prayers differently because they had not understood all of the words. Um, they had local sites of pilgrimage um, that were that 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 um, were not a, a necessarily approved by the um, powers that be. Um, they would uh, local local um, local communities would often have, um, for example, icons uh, that they regarded as miraculous, um, and th that had not been officially approved. And it's quite interesting because um, the the priests would be in a funny position with many of these local practices because on one on the one level. Uh, priests were supposed to uh, ensure sort of orthodox orthodoxy, you know, to make sure that people were were doing things right. Um, at the same time, 
the priests were members of the local community, and they 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 appreciated uh, their 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 parishioners' faithfulness, and they appreciated their parishioners' involvement, and so they had to walk a fine line between correcting and supporting uh, the, the the religiosity of their parishioners. Would you describe the place of relics in Russian Orthodoxy? And if we want to get a little kind of theological, you know, (laughs) what that says about Orthodox theology, maybe of the body or um, of whether the material world is somehow redeemable. What's going on with relics in the the Russian church? Um, Well, thanks for the, that's a good question. Um, uh, This gets to the heart actually of Orthodox theology. the, the, the doctrine of the incarnation, the, the notion that God became fully human in the form of Jesus Christ and yet remained fully God at the same time, is at the heart of Christianity and it's particularly um, at the center of orthodox spiritual practice. Um, so the aim of a Christian life is to preserve and intensify the union between God and humans that that God exemplified by becoming a, a, a man in Jesus Christ, and and um, the 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 what's the word? Sorry, the the uh, uh, sorry, the um, it's not worshiping the. Sorry, I'm having a blank here. I'll try this again. The relics of the saints uh, play an important role in this sort of incarnational theology and this incarnational spirituality. Uh, the relics of saints um, are are perceived as um, as a reminder that God took a material body, and that by doing that, God proved that matter could be redeemed. And so um, there, there is a, 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 an orthodox tradition, it's not a dogma, but a tradition that, um, that uh, the bodies of, of saints will not uh, corrupt, that they are incorruptible, and, um, and that they're miraculously preserved from decay. And so in many uh, monasteries, uh, there are the, the uh, uncorrupted remains of various saints, and people will come on pilgrimage to pray before these, these relics. Um, and you know, and and sermons and magazines at the time would explain that that uh, that these incorruptible bodies of God's saints were God's way of showing people that they too participated in in this um, connection between God and and humans, that their own bodies uh, would be resurrected at the end of time, that, um, that, and that orthodox truth was, uh, was sort of shown through these bodies. And so people would come to pray before the relics as, um, as channels of divine power, as, as ways to to focus uh, on the lives of those saints and uh, the, 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 the realities of the incarnation. 
this is <laughs> this is a kind of a related question and not in my list but I was <laughs> talking with a theologian that I'm working with who's who's researching the this program and we we've kind of been wondering how influential do you do you know mm-hmm. uh, how influential Saint Simeon the New Theologian was on Russian monasticism in this period? I don't I don't know. Okay, that's fine. That's all right. That's all right. You know, of course, we're headed towards Rasputin, and mm-hmm. Rasputin seems to have taken the teachings of Saint Simeon the New Theologian and and the the relic as a means of connecting with God and veneration, devotion, and taking that onto him. Onto himself, in a you know maybe in a distortion or an idiosyncratic way of interpreting um, that the the living body of Rasputin, the teacher, should be treated as a relic, mm-hmm. uh, or the way that a dead relic would be. Uh huh. Um, well, this, I mean, this this does connect into the the orthodox. This is a a distortion of of a broader orthodox theology of of um, the image and mm. um, you know that orthodoxy is um, is a much more has a much more well-developed theology of the material than uh, Western Christianity does and um, uh, orthodoxy um, believes that we I mean as as do other Christians that humans are 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 made in the image of God and so Jesus is a, is an icon uh, a, an image of God but so is each person and and that our that our 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 goal in life our our salvation entails becoming uh, that that perfect image of of God, um, it, it, salvation involves connecting with the the holy energies that are around us and aligning our behavior, and our minds and our spirits with uh, with those holy energies in order to fully realize this this incarnation this 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 um, the fact that we are created in the image of God, and so and so you know. When Rasputin is doing this, he's drawing on um, he's drawing on important uh, ideas that are at the heart of Orthodox spirituality. That's great. Um, so, <laughs> kind of climbing back into our mm-hmm. our questions and our outline here. It's okay. Um, would you? Give us a brief description of what is meant by old believers in Russia at this period. Oh, sure. Um, so the old believers uh, were a, a quite a large um, group of of Orthodox people who were in schism with the main Orthodox Church um, back in the 17th century. The uh, official Orthodox Church began to, to to modernize and it began to reform and try to standardize religious practice. And as it did so, it um, it discovered that Russian practice had begun to differ from that of the Greeks. Um, uh, the Orthodox faith had originally come from from the Greeks. And uh, the leaders of the church at this time uh, as they were standardizing, tended to standardize in ways that that followed the ways that the Greeks did things. Um, 
And this uh, was very upsetting to many Orthodox believers because, uh, as, I, as I just mentioned, um, right Orthodoxy means right practice. And the, 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 the physical practice, the way that one worships, uh, is considered to be critical to reaching salvation. And uh, Russians had, had traditionally crossed themselves with two fingers, um, uh, and, which is a symbol of the incarnation. But the Greeks crossed themselves with three fingers, a symbol of the Trinity, another important doctrine. Um, and uh, and when, the, when the church began to correct the ways in which believers uh, worshipped uh, there was a whole element uh, who, for example, resisted crossing themselves with three fingers because they really believed that that if they practiced wrong, that they uh, that their salvation was in jeopardy. Um, there were many uh, there were many issues connected to the uh, the emergence of the old believers, but at the center of it was this this dispute about religious authority and, and, about, uh, and about correct practice. And so in the late 17th century, you have large numbers of, of people who left the church uh, and became known, dubbed as the old believers. Um, and, they, uh, and, and the old believers continued, um, right? Uh, well, there are still old believers today, um, but it, it was illegal to be an old believer. And so many of them fled to Siberia and to the, 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 the farther reaches of the empire. Um, and and they, were, they, they became gradually more and more tolerated in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, but, um, but they were but they were uh, the, the the Orthodox Church consistently um, wanted to bring them back into the fold, and so they were considered a, a problem from the perspective of the uh, official Orthodox Church. Mm. Speaking of groups that are treated as a problem, could you describe the Chlisti for us? Aha, uh -huh, the Chlisti. Well, um, the Chlisti. Um, started life as a group called the um, the Christovshina or the Christova Viera, which means the faith of Christ or, or God's people. Um, this was a Russian religious movement that that really began life in the late 17th century out of the uh, as a branch of the old belief. And uh, like certain other branches of the old belief, the the Christovshina, um, uh, demanded celibacy from its adherents, and um, they had, they had, um, they didn't have different doctrines or any sort of systematic doctrine. These were groups of believers who met together regularly at night for long prayer meetings, uh, where they would sing spiritual verses and church hymns and recite the the Jesus prayer, a, a central Orthodox prayer. Um, that is is recited um, in a meditative format. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you recite it over and over. Um, and these meetings um, uh, 
would the goal was to to have the Holy Spirit descend on certain of the members, uh, these leaders who were known as Christ's or as mothers of God, and then and then they would dance and they would prophesy. Um, at the same time, these people would faithfully attend uh, the official Orthodox Church and fulfill their obligations in the official Orthodox Church. Uh, some of them even entered convents and monasteries. But, and so, uh, but very early, uh, their enemies started calling them uh, not Christi or Christ's, but Christi, which means a whip or flagellants. <laughs> Um, they were accused of sexual immorality, of having orgies. Um, the American historian Eugene Clay has shown that there was in fact there is in fact no evidence of this, and um, that uh, you know already in the early 18th century the the, the term chlisti really doesn't have any any meaning. It's 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 applied to a whole range of unrelated sort of charismatic religious movements. Um, there's no religious group that claims to be Hlisti. Um, there is certainly some evidence of networks of these charismatic groups, uh, but they saw themselves as being within orthodoxy. Mm. Would you say a bit about why Baptist faith in Russia was considered German or foreign? Yeah. Well, that's a that's a, a good question. Um, not not so surprising about the foreign bit, but certainly about the German bit, because uh, those who know the history of the Baptist faith know that it it's a, an English phenomenon originally. Um, but it uh, the Baptist faith spread into the, the the German lands in the early nineteenth century, and. Um, and uh, through sort of pietist networks and so on. And, and then um, by the 1840s and 50s, uh, it spread into the Russian Empire through the many, many, many German uh, colonies of people living within the Russian Empire. So there were, there were German communities spread throughout Poland, which was adjacent to the German lands. There were German-speaking communities all across the, the south of the empire, what is now Ukraine, um, who had been uh, invited to come and, and develop agricultural communities and so on in the empire. Um, and there was, of course, German speakers in the uh, Baltic uh, provinces. And, and so the, the Baptist faith came through those German networks uh, into the Russian Empire and developed first among ethnic Germans um, in the cities and in the countryside. And then um, local Russians and Ukrainians uh, who were in contact with these uh, Germans sometimes became attracted to uh, to the the sort of revivalist uh, hymn singing uh, meetings and uh, started started joining them and uh, the Baptist faith began to spread among Russians and Ukrainians in the empire. But it was considered to be sort of a foreign thing because it uh, because to be Russian was to be Orthodox. Mm. 
Could you say a little bit more about that? How how did the Orthodox Church relate not just to the Baptists, uh, but also to the old believers and these other devotional movements, charismatic movements? <laughs> Is there a way to kind of crystallize and articulate how the church authorities related to sects and sectarianism in the 1890s and the early 1900s? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so in the in the 1890s, the um, in large part th- from through pressure from the Orthodox Church, the state uh, had a system of uh, classifying the danger of various what it called religious sects and um and they were they were classified as more or less dangerous based on their um on on a couple of um on their distance from orthodoxy uh on their uh evangelicalism with a small e in other words whether they were sort of proselytizing or not and then on their on their um, sort of moral stance, and so the chlisti are are classified as as most dangerous uh, because they are also allegedly, uh, you know, self-flagellating and sexually dangerous, and and so on. Even if they were in fact also somewhat imaginary, um, and the Baptists are classified as in the most dangerous category because they were very big on proselytization. Um, uh, so, so there's a, a state, a state and church structure that are related, but in the 1890s and early 1900s, the Orthodox Church also had very active missions to bring uh, all of these groups, what they called internal missions, that were aimed at bringing all of these groups that, that had Russian, ethnic Russian believers back to the church. Um, and so there were separate, the, ortho, the, the old believers were, were perceived as, as uh, their own sort of category, and there were separate mission, missions to the old believers and then to the various uh, religious, quote unquote, sects. Um, and uh, um, so the so so there was and 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 the church was very um, worried. Um, it did not want the state to 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 tolerate um, these these sects, and it and it uh, encouraged a, a perception that uh, that religious dissent was connected to political dissent, and that if you were not faithful to the state church, how could you be faithful to the state? So, on the Russian church and state, Mm -hmm. would you give us a sketch of the structures of authority within the Russian Orthodox Church? Uh, Maybe starting with Peter the Great, how his reign created what you write is a, a major realignment in church and state relations. What happened there, and then what does authority look like with church and state toward the end of the Russian Empire? Mm-hmm. Well, this is, of course, a, 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 this question of, of church and state is a huge one. Um, the um, uh, so oh, sorry, <laughs> I don't even That's know right. where to start. <laughs> sorry, uh, I'll just yeah. get myself together here. Um, yeah, so um, the. This, the relationship between church and state is is usually seen as having been fundamentally uh, reordered under Peter the Great in, in the early uh, 18th century. Um, 
in the 17th century, uh, the, the Russian Orthodox Church was a, uh, what is known as an autocephalous or self-governing independent Orthodox Church, and it had, uh, as autocephalous churches do, a, a, a patriarch, a, um, uh, the, 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 the top person in the church was, um, was called the patriarch. And um, the, there was already a lot of tension between church and state uh, in the 17th century, precisely over the old believer uh, reforms, uh, the, the reforms that led to the development of the uh, old believer schism, um, when, the, when the, church, the state stepped in and sort of uh, uh, legislated on the schism and said that the church was right, uh, but that the patriarch who had instituted them uh, needed to go. Um, so the church was already weakened uh, by the late 17th century vis-a-vis -vis the state. Um, but in 1700, when the patriarch died, Peter the Great didn't um, didn't organize uh, uh, the appointment of a new patriarch and just left the office empty. And then in 1721, uh, he uh, introduced um, uh, a new body to replace, to formally abolish the patriarchate and uh, and he replaced it with a council of bishops known as the Holy Synod. And uh, this council of bishops, uh, starting the following year in 1722, was supervised by a state official known as the over-procurator, who was meant to be the eyes and ears of the monarch in the synod. Uh, this was uh, later considered to be a real sort of revolution against the uh, traditional form of management of the Orthodox Church, but also a diminution of the Orthodox Church because the um, the, the Council of Bishops uh, is is was although although it is incorrect as it is often stated to suggest that it became a, a simply a department of the state the holy synod uh, was was not the uh, a sort of a parallel monarch the way that the patriarch had been a parallel monarch of this church to the monarch in the state um, and uh, throughout the Throughout the 18th century, the over-procurator had relatively little power, but in the 19th century, we have a series of over-procurators, of, of these general directors of the synod, who, uh, be, who become interested in religion and who interfere and who, uh, uh, who frustrate the bishops uh, by, by, uh, by by interfering and by by trying to introduce um, use the church for uh, the state's purposes, and so uh, there was there was considerable tension in that system. Um, yes, uh, I guess the only other thing I would say about structures of authority within the Orthodox Church is that uh, that I should have mentioned at the beginning is that the 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 um, the bishops the 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 hierarchy of the church are all monastics. Uh, they're all monks, and uh, they preside over a, 
uh, in order to to rise in the church, you have to be uh, a, a monk, uh, and they preside over a church that is um, has a secular clergy known as the white clergy, which are who are who are the parish priests. But the parish priests cannot rise into the hierarchy unless they take monastic uh, vows. So uh, the the structures are quite complex um, in that respect. Would you say a little bit more about that difference between the monastic clergy and the parish clergy uh, at this point? How are their lives yeah. different? Sure. Um, so these are two the two big categories, the monastic clergy known as the, the black clergy and the parish clergy sometimes known as the white clergy. Um, the, the monastic clergy uh, is divided into, subdivided within itself into other categories. Um, the monastic clergy, uh, the, the, the elite of the monastic clergy, the, the, um, the uh, abbots of, of monasteries, the, the uh, diocesan uh, hierarchs, the, the bishops, um, are, are all part of what, it, what was a sort of a learned um, mon uh, monasticism. These were, these were monks who, who trained in the theological academies and um, who, who became monks on, the, on the, the road to their rise through the uh, church as, as, uh, as I say, rectors of seminaries and, and bishops of provinces and uh, dioceses diocese and so on. Uh, then there was uh, the, a broader um, set of monks who uh, were more or less educated um, and uh, who who um, were were, um, were were lived a much more reclusive monastic life. Um, and then there were also uh, female uh, monastics as well, nuns. Um, on the uh, white clergy or parish clergy side, uh, we have a very, uh, very different story, a very interesting situation. The, uh, the monastic, the, the, sorry, the parish clergy were a, 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 a largely, uh, almost an, almost a caste. Uh, they were a married clergy. Uh, so they like, like, uh, you know, Anglican or, um, or um, you know Lutheran uh, pastors, they they had families, um, they and but they but the children of parish priests became themselves parish priests. They were educated within a, 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 a the, the 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 church had a, a separate system of education for clergy children, and clergy daughters tended to marry clergymen's sons, and uh, and and they would they would uh, become um, priests and priests' wives just like their parents had been before them. Uh, the parish clergy uh, were increasingly uh, well educated. Um, the in the 18th century, you have a, a bunch of reforming bishops who who are um, instituting seminary education throughout the empire. And by the by the 1830s or 40s, that's become pretty much a universal um, seminary education. Um, uh, so the the parish the parish clergy were were uh, quite quite well educated, um, and uh, they live 
They live very isolated lives in the village where they are often the only educated people. And, and so their families were, 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 were very, um, they were at once connected to the village. They're part of village life and they're separate because the children go off to these, these boarding schools in the provincial capitals uh, to be educated. Uh, and, 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 and they, they, they come back to the village with, with, with uh, an urban culture that, that, that is not shared with the villagers. So they're kind of, um, they're kind of monkeys in the middle. The, uh, the, the, the bishops usually had come from clerical families, um, so they, they know that culture, but they, but they lived very different lives uh, from the parish priests who, who had, to be, um, had to be supported by their local communities and thus had a, 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 a sometimes tricky relationship with their local communities. How did the great reforms of the 1860s change Russian religious life? How was the church affected by that period of, of change, the great reforms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the great reforms of the 1860s, uh, you know, the, 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 the reforms that follow from the emancipation of the serfs in 1861 um, were there, part of this, there was a, a there was a profound reform of the church that accompanied this um, efforts to to, um, to 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 modernize the church uh, to to make the make the uh, parish to 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 make the parish clergy uh, more vocational and less inherited as a as a as a profession um, to uh, free up the children of of parish clergy to 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 leave the clerical estate and work in other areas of society um, and so on so on one level we have um, this 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 sort of shake up in the organization and uh, of the church and efforts to uh, efforts to allow clerical children to, to, to move out into the broader world. And that actually had a, a profound effect on, on uh, uh, education in the Russian Empire, which was booming in this period, because many of those, those um, clergy sons and daughters go into the education field and, and, and bring with them the values of their, of their, uh, their, their, their priest kids, you know, they bring those values of, 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 uh, of, of their families into the Russian, uh, broader Russian society. Um, it's also a period, um, when, when the, uh, the church, um, like all other organizations, uh, is 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 participating in uh, education in um, uh, uh, the, the 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 expanded communications world and it is is trying to trying to uh, popularize and standardize religion um, to organize uh, brotherhoods and and other ways of of in enlivening the uh, the life of the laity in the church and making lay practice more more knowledgeable and more um, more um, active um, and so the the 1860s um, 
that that spirit, that sort of populism with a small p of the 1860s, that, that desire to reach out to the people and to lift up the people, uh, really uh, animates many priests' uh, vision of their ministry and priests um, who had previously put great emphasis on their, their liturgical uh, function, their, their role as ritual specialists, although, the, although ritual remains profoundly important to Orthodox spirituality, uh, priests really adopt a very, a very pastoral, educational uh, kind of self-image uh, from the 1860s onward, and so uh, and so we see the really the rise of of, of regular sermon giving and all all kinds of um, interest in organizing, oh, say, so, um, uh, uh, anti-drinking <laughs> circles in the parishes and uh, Bible study groups and these sorts of things. So I think that the great reforms did have a real impact on Russian religious life. The final way I would say is that the great reforms uh, are, saw the beginning of the movement of some peasants uh, out of the villages. The, you, you, you have the beginning of industrialization, you have uh, a lot of migrant workers, and um, people are less tied to the village than they had been before. Um, and and so the, all of that movement and uh, exposes people to new kinds of ideas, and that can be quite um, uh, for the church. That's a real challenge, and 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 the church is is very worried about um, how how peasants are 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 in are no longer fully rooted in the village and 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 they fear that peasants will encounter such such uh, dangerous things as as the baptists or or the uh Christi. you've also written that the 1800s is a time when the percentage of people in monasteries shifts toward women mm -hmm. what was driving that change why why were more women going into the monasteries during the 1800s well, you know, that's also very interesting, and it's it's actually not just women. Um, the um, there, there is f overall just a boom in monasticism in the 19th century, um, and, and, and there's no question that uh, it's a disproportionate boom for, for women. Um, in the 18th century, the uh, Russian church and state, um, like like other um, in other in Catholic Europe as well, uh, was quite anti-monastic, and um, and there was a real uh, push to 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 close down most monasteries by the late 18th century, um, and and um, monasteries had been uh, had 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 largely operated in cities before that and they and basically to join a monastery you had to sort of have your own money you had to be able to pay for yourself to to come and, and be in the monastery and there's a shift towards a more communal uh, model of monasticism in the uh, early 19th century, uh, and there's a and the state becomes and the church become more positive about monasticism in the early 19th century, 
and that allowed for ordinary people to join these uh, these these uh, convents and and monasteries uh, when there was a, a a collectivist model where you where the monastery itself became a an economic unit and 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 the mo the monks or the nuns worked together to farm or or produce artisanal uh, things to to say to to pay for their way or they had patrons and the monasteries also moved out into the countryside. And um, and so both men's monasteries and women's monasteries uh, saw a, a huge influx of peasants and lower uh, urban uh, people from the lower urban classes who who um, could now join these monasteries and and most of these monasteries new monasteries were also in the countryside so they're more easily accessible. Um, it's actually fairly hard for us to get at, um, uh, we have very few personal documents to give us insight into these very ordinary people's uh, goals and what attracted them. But what we see um, is a combination of religious and personal and emotional benefits that, that um, that uh, people got from going to these monasteries. And we know that these women's monasteries in particular tended to start as uh, informal lay communities that could, could exist for years and years. And they were, they were, this seems to have been a socially acceptable way for uh, peasant women who wanted to serve God, uh, who, who, who didn't want to participate in uh, the, 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 the sort of obligatory marriage and family uh, and, and agricultural life that uh, most peasant women participated in. And these communities uh, often were supported by local uh, communities and perceived as 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 acceptable and and um, and and uh, places that that women who had a, a different sort of spiritual calling could could go and then gradually uh, these um, these informal communities would become formalized and be become part of the uh, of the the monastic system of the church. So it's hard for us to say, but we can certainly say for sure that um, by, by the time of the revolution, there were far more women monastics than men. Hmm. You write that in, uh, in popular moods, there were both affection and contempt for Russian Orthodox ministers. Would you just say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, there were certainly lots of uh, you know lots of folklore that made fun of of priests and um, and and you know f funny little phrases about priests. Um, the the priest was of course a central figure in every village life in in the community in the cities as well. Um, priests were 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 on one level highly respected. Uh, they, they performed the sacraments, they, they, were, they were village leaders, they were educated people uh, in the community, both in the cities and in the countryside. 
Uh, priests' wives were leaders in the community as well. Their families were were uh, ideally seen as as models. Um, but there was also um, uh, there was also contempt, and uh, the contempt came uh, from two sources. The contempt on one level came from the social from from the from the uh, rest of educated society from noble and professional classes of of educated society and this came from the fact that the clergy was such a sort of self-contained almost caste-like social group uh, who were educated in the seminaries, who married one another's children. Um, they, they were perceived by the sort of secular uh, in, uh, educated uh, society as, as being um, sort of inward-looking, um, um, nativist, uh, they're perceived as 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 being country bumpkins who live in the countryside, um, and uh, their education was different. Their education, uh, the education in the in the state uh, uh, gymnasia, the the state secondary schools, was uh, on a European Western European classical sort of model, um, and uh, the the and it, and it emphasized uh, Western European history, Western European literature, and so on. The uh, seminary education uh, emphasized religion, not surprisingly, <laughs> um, and it also emphasized uh, Russian literature and Russian culture, um, uh, and and that was uh, so. They had different. They had different cultural worlds that they came from, and and uh, so they were looked down on in that way. Now, meanwhile, with their communities, um, they they were they were certainly, as I say, central figures of uh, of the parish community and and looked up to most of the time. But they were also um, they they were also uh, resented, and they were resented because the community had to support them financially. And they had large families, so they were expensive. Um, and on, they were very expensive. Uh, moreover, because the church required uh, that uh, required that they educate their sons at these church-run uh, institutions, there were prep schools uh, from about the age of oh, about nine or or so until about 15. And then you went to the seminary, and the seminary was from about age 15 to 22. Um, you're, the, these, parish, these parish priests' families were just in a constant financial straits, trying to scrape up the money to pay to send the kids you know, uh, and pay for the boarding houses where the kids would live in the towns uh, for this education. And uh, the the priests uh, the, the priests were paid basically through um, uh, tips, <laughs> gratuities, and uh, orthodoxy um, has a 
involves a lot of different rituals that people uh, will have performed both in their homes and and at the church. So um, for baptisms and marriages and funerals, a, a tip would be expected, but also the priest would visit to bless your home after Christmas in January and, and so on, and, and tips would be expected. And this, of course, created a very awkward situation. <laughs> and, and then the the parishes also needed to supply uh, homes for their priests and uh, land that the priest could work, but then the parishioners would also be expected to help farm that land. And of course, that took time from the parishioners' own farming. Uh, and so there was a lot of tension about the frankly, paying the clergy. Um, and then finally, there was tension because, as I mentioned, um, you know, parishioners generally wanted religious services and they wanted their priests uh, uh, in the community, but they didn't like when the priests corrected how them. <laughs> and they didn't necessarily like it if the priest didn't perform the ritual the way they wanted it performed. Um, and so sometimes there could be tension about about that as well. Mm. So let's head toward the Romanov court and religion in Russian high society. Um, would you describe the role of the Tsar in the Russian church? Were there differences in how this role you know, was perceived uh, among the elite by the Tsar uh, himself versus how the Tsar and the, would have been perceived popularly as a religious figure. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, there was a lot of, there was a, a lot of brouhaha in, in the West, which has made its way into uh, into a lot of writing about um, the Russian church, which uh, argued that um, the Russian church was Caesaropapist, that just <laughs> like the Byzantine church, that the, that the Tsar was, you know, that the Tsar was the head of the church and ran the church, um, and that that was made particularly clear, you know, with Peter the Great's uh, reforms and, um, and that the, the Tsar had a heavy-handed role in the church. Uh, I wouldn't say that was the case in, in practice. Um, certainly the Tsar um, has a very, very important uh, role. The, Russia was a, an autocracy until 1905, and, and the, the, the church... Um, the church certainly preaches that the that the tsar uh, is that the that the tsar is anointed by the church uh, to 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 legislate in a moral fashion and to to lead the people as a as a as a as a an orthodox leader who is advised and uh, by by the church um, and and they they. They they also the church also tries to to <laughs> assert its authority in society by reminding the tsar of his responsibility to the church that anoints him uh, to, to his responsibility to God and to God's church. Um, 
the the tsar you know in my own in my own research i can see you know certainly the tsar uh you know read over um uh annual reports from the diocese and would put comments in the margin and uh those comments would be followed up on <laughs> um and uh you know, the, the Tsar was certainly involved, but um, I wouldn't describe the Tsar as more than a symbolic um, kind of role in, in the church. Um, now, different Tsars had different views of their role in the church. And, um, and you know, um, Nicholas II, the, the final, the last Tsar of the, the empire, was a very, very devout uh, person, and he took very seriously this 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 sense that he was uh, anointed by God and that he had a a, a divine responsibility. Um, and he he also had a very um, he he idealized the Russian people, and he he believed that um, that the people believed that about him and that he had a, a responsibility, a religious responsibility to the, the people. Um, the elite um, was divided, I would say. Um, the elite, uh, there were, there were many members of the I would say that overall, the Russian nobility was were were, were faithful Orthodox people. Mm. Um, uh, that Orthodoxy was was an important part of um, of of Russian um, elite life. Um, now there were certainly um, there were certainly elements that uh, were were less um, enthusiastic about the church. The church was not integrated into elite life the way, for example, the Anglican church was in, in Britain, um, because, you know, at the Anglican church, you or, or even, you know, before the revolution, the French church, you know, elite families, younger sons might go into the church. Whereas in, in, in Russia, uh, the the elite's younger sons did not go into the church. The church hierarchy came out of, uh, were sons of parish priests, basically. Um, and so, so, so we don't have that same kind of affinity or connection uh, to the church. And, um, and I've already mentioned this sort of disdain for, um, for the church uh, culturally and, and uh, the snobbishness uh, educationally and so on. Um, in terms of the popular, the populace, that's a, another very complex uh, question. Um, um, the, 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 the historians have, have pointed to a, a great phenomenon of naive monarchism, of, of ordinary people who, who believed that the, that the government um, was the problem, and if only they could get to the Tsar, the Tsar was was faithful to the to the to the to the little guy and um, and that you know the problem was the bureaucrats in between. And um, it's possible that there was some of that on a religious level, 
between from the population uh, sort of thinking that there were problems with the church, but that perhaps the Tsar was was better than that. Um, but I don't think we see a, a, a lot of that. Um, the 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 church certainly so the church certainly preached um, you know devotion to the Tsar and. Uh, preached a vision of the Tsar as a as a as a quasi religious figure, um, but I have to say I'm not I'm not sure um, what we can concretely say about popular perceptions of the the Tsar's role in the church. So how important was the decree of religious tolerance that went out in 1905? Well, I think it was a very important moment. Um, it, it's uh, so in in April of 1905, in the midst of the uh, the, revol- the 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 growing revolution of 1905, the the uh, Tsar signed a decree on on Easter Day, um, uh, declaring that uh, previously. Um, that that people who had left orthodoxy uh, would 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 or that it would now be possible to leave orthodoxy uh, and join another another faith, and uh, allowed for um, a legal existence for the old believers, for the Baptists, for the Molokans and Duchobors and the various religious uh, groups, nonconformist religious groups. This uh, was a terrible shock to the church. Uh, the church felt betrayed by this. The church felt um, that they had um, that, that, that this was an example of the state overstepping its bounds. Um, that, that, that religion was the was the the bailiwick of the church, and that the the that the government had had interfered. Um, and it, uh, but it, but it also spurred the church to a, a discussion about uh, mission, about uh, about religious tolerance, about its position within the state. Um, there's uh, for for the for the various non-orthodox. Um, religious Christian denominations. This was a period of, of great flowering. Um, they all started magazines and started holding congresses. And, and um, although they were technically not allowed to proselytize, they were only allowed to publish for their own people and so on. Um, it, 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 this this really was the beginning of a of a different relationship with the uh, with the state and a different level of legitimacy for religious difference in Russia. The government tries to kind of claw this back, um, uh, but uh, but there but there were there were long debates in the Duma, the the uh, the parliament that emerged from the in the semi-constitutional order after 1905, um, that that um, that debated how to continue to implement and manage religious tolerance, and so I think it was very important because it opened up this huge and ongoing public conversation 
about the relationship between the church and the state and uh, and the church and uh, and the individual conscience. In the introduction to the book Sacred Stories, mm -hmm. uh, you write with Mark Steinberg that writers, artists, and intellectuals at this point pursued a nonconformist kind of God-seeking often. Mm -hmm. And this isn't every person, but that there was a culture of private prayer, of mysticism, interest in spiritualism, theosophy, Nietzschean philosophy, and, and more Eastern religions, mm -hmm. other idealizations of imagination, feeling, mystical mm -hmm. connections, that there was a home for all of this mm -hmm. in Russian high society and in Russian intellectual society at the time. Would you say a little bit about what created this space for that kind of religiosity, that kind of mode of religious seeking to flourish? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. There was there was a this is a period of great of great uh, spiritual ferment and and of of uh, of seeking of new paths. I think that there were a number of things going on in Russian intellectual life by the early 20th century that um, that encouraged this. Um, the first is um, the, in in a sense, um, the the revolution of 1905. Um, it, it it is it it was the it was the culmination of 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 a of a sort of a movement, um, a kind of a liberal movement to to uh, for constitutionalism, for for transformation of the of the state, um, and then there's a period of, of of disillusionment with the people and disillusionment with with the results of that of that revolution of 1905, and many intellectuals who had who had uh, been Marxists or liberals um, begin to, and but especially Marxists uh, begin to turn away from from uh, materialism, and they and they are drawn to to idealism. They're drawn to to uh, religion. They are frustrated with the political world, and they they look for other other forms of, of, of meaning and identity and, and so on um, as, the, as the political situation becomes less and less free after uh, 1906, 1907. Uh, so partly it's that. Uh, partly it's connected to uh, broader changes in uh, Russian and, and, and frankly, uh, pan-European uh, intellectual culture of the late 19th and early 20th century, the, the turn from realism, in, um, uh, which had been the dominant um, sort of artistic uh, uh, philosophy of, in literature and in, in art, uh, in uh, the second half of the 19th century, um, and a, a turn towards symbolism, uh, um, this, this sort of modernist um, uh, rejection of, 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 of um, realism. And so that also encouraged um, this, this, this interest in, in uh, mysticism, uh, spiritualism, and so on. 
Um, and I think also it's this it's this sense of separateness from the from the Russian Orthodox Church that was experienced among a certain love a certain element of Russian uh, uh, ed educated society. In that they were specifically looking to live outside or beyond the Russian Church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you know that there's so I think that there's a turn away from there's a turn towards spiritual. Uh, there's a there's an interest uh, there's a renewed interest across Europe in um, the spiritual, the mystical, um, and uh, and and this is. This is a. This takes these people who, uh, in some senses, are detached from the church. Um, this provides them with a, a an avenue uh, for exploring this kind of um, the, the, these spiritual um, desires and 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 concerns. Mm. Mm. So, if dissatisfaction with the established church was part of spurring these kinds of religious energies and seeking, mm -hmm. how important were kind of individual mystics and healers in that movement, in that ferment? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there were, I think that um, the, the, there was, there was huge variety here. And um, there, you know, when we talk about popular urban religious ferment, um, there's it, it, it's different in different classes, uh, social classes. Um, there is there is also religious ferment at the, uh, you know, among the the sort of working classes uh, as well. Um, and and certainly there were there there were individuals who um, around whom various um, various movements gathered. Uh, some of these uh, some of these were in the church. Um, so you have, for example, um, uh, Father uh, John of Kronstadt, who was truly the Billy Graham of late Imperial Russia. He was a priest who had a church outside of Petersburg in Kronstadt, uh, where he emphasized a, a kind of a charismatic, um, participatory um, uh, form of orthodoxy. Um, it had a quite a quite a sort of mystical side. People would travel to uh, his to his parish. They would write to him. They they had people would carry posters and cards about him. He was he was a huge religious figure, and he was within the church. But then he had groups of followers who who um, sort of went beyond and 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 sort of idealized him and and turn him into a sort of a a mystical figure that they that they that they admire in and of himself but you also have as you say certainly um various individuals who who gather uh groups of people around them both uh, among the lower classes and the upper classes um uh i would i would say that it was 
not unusual, but that most of this religious revival, both among uh, educated and especially among uneducated people, was basically within the um, the was was basically more inclined to be evangelical uh, with you know Baptist in some sort of way um, or or um, on the edges of orthodoxy. Um, so a popular teacher who doesn't see himself as outside of orthodoxy but who gathers a following and the church is a little nervous about that person because he's not <laughs> you know he's not a formal priest or 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 monk but but the people are not perceiving themselves as 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 outside of the church mm, yeah yeah. Uh, and I you would know, say, sorry, I, just to finish uh, another point is that, you know, like all other churches, the Orthodox Church had trouble keeping up with the growth of, of working class suburbs in cities. And, and so sometimes, you know, there's a lack of availability of a church right there in the neighborhood. And so people make their own fun, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, then, uh, yeah, I'll just say, you know, today we think of, of Rasputin, Gregory Rasputin, as a kind of singular figure who stands out from history for all the legends that we know about him. But did he have peers in Russian life, in Russian, Russian religious life, maybe, that made him legible to those around him where they would kind of know, oh, this is the kind of person that that is? Well, I would say uh, yes and no. <laughs> um I think Rasputin fits into two familiar categories, uh, sort of. Um, the first <laughs> is the religious traveler, the stranik, um, the religious wanderer. Um, there was a, a great tradition uh, in Russian life of welcoming pilgrims, of welcoming holy people, who traveled uh, to, to shrines, who traveled from village to village, uh, living on, on donations and, and uh, trying to, these were people who were religious searchers, who were trying to, to become uh, the person that God had made them to be. <laughs> um, and, and so there was great respect for that sort of uh, religious traveler. Um, uh, a, a sort of, uh, maybe there's three, there, another, another category that sometimes overlapped with the religious traveler was the holy fool. Um, this is someone who is a, a, a long, there's a long tradition in, in, uh, Orthodox culture of the fool for Christ, of someone who is, um, uh, we might regard as, as insane, <laughs> um, someone who lives on the edge of society, who perhaps does not behave according to social norms, um, who may not wash or who may, you know, um, speak in strange ways, uh, who may, may um, behave in an odd way, but who is perceived as, as being 
as being a, a fool for Christ, as someone who who is there to sort of test our 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 love and our and our tolerance, and to and to tell us the truth that we don't want to hear because the person is such an outsider that they can say things that others would not could not say. So I see. I think that those are components that might make Rasputin legible. And then a final component is the um, the tradition of the starets. Um, the starci were el the word means elder. And um, the nineteenth century, in addition to a monastic revival, sees a, a great a great revival of um, of, uh, of of an eldership. Uh, in the church, and these um, these religious elders were were not. They tended to be monks or nuns, but mostly monks, um, and they. But they were not. Uh, uh, they their their authority was charismatic rather than official, so they were not appointed to be elders not appointed to be spiritual advisors, but they become recognized by the population as spiritual advisors, as, as, as people who uh, uh, could guide people in their individual spiritual searching. And, um, and so there were various monasteries where various uh, spiritual elders became famous and people would travel for great distances to um, visit these elders and talk to them about their, their spiritual journeys, uh, to seek advice, to seek support. Um, educated people might write to these spiritual elders. These would be long-standing relationships that could go on for decades uh, between a uh, a believer and a and a and a staritz, uh, 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 one of these um, spiritual advisors, but these but they were not official figures, and the the church had a very sort of um, mixed feeling about them uh, again because they have a they have an authority that's that's charismatic and hard to control. Um, so Rasputin. Um, fit into some of these modes. And, and this is where I think um, the Tsar uh, and his spirituality, Nicholas II's spirituality, his, his idealization of the common people, and his fundamental disconnection with actual real ordinary people comes into play because, um, uh, you know, circles uh, around the Tsar who, who welcomed Rasputin saw him as a staritz, they saw him as an elder, um, but he didn't really have that kind of authority uh, among he, 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 within the church. Um, he uh, he did have the charismatic authority in the sense that he was recognized by the Tsar and by or or, or by the Tsar the Tsarina and members of the uh, members of the, the 
the, their circles as of, and of high society as having having a religious um, uh, sort of eldership. But um, I think that he would certainly he's certainly not typical of these uh, of these elders in reality. How did the church? handle reports of miraculous healing in the 1900s, maybe the, this early period, the end of the Russian <laughs> Empire. Were the reports welcomed? Were they celebrated? Were they investigated? Were they treated with skepticism? How did the church <laughs> handle reports like this? <laughs> so the, the church, um, by the early uh, 20th century, the church, um, like um, the Roman Catholic Church to the West, um, had a had a very mixed relationship with miraculous healing. Um, it, it, on one level, um, the the church uh, preached that miraculous healing was was possible and happened, um, and uh, and and the church supported um, people's um, people's desire for uh, religious healing. Um, at the same time, the church was very uh, careful about recognizing um, a, a miraculous healing and had a, a, a bureaucratic process for uh, investigating reports of miraculous healing, uh, investigating, uh, talking, uh, finding, t going to somebody's home community and finding out about uh, their 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 previous illness and invest in interviewing uh, the the person who claimed a miraculous healing, interviewing witnesses. Um, so there was in fact a very uh, a, a very complex relationship. Now, the 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 church uh, had had uh, a number of popular magazines uh, that were aimed at at ordinary people, and uh, there would be fairly extensive reports uh, about these uh, approved miraculous healings in these magazines. So the church, as I say, um, was not against them, uh, but the church was very careful about them and had a complex bureaucratic process. And this, this meant that um, this this could could be quite frustrating for an individual who felt that she or he had had a miraculous healing, uh, and then found that the uh, church authorities were skeptical about it. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's an area of tension, I would say, between um, uh, religious communities and the official church. But it's an area of tension where the church and the communities are are fundamentally on the same side in believing mm. in miraculous healing. But but the church needs to be very careful about its authority uh, in in terms of of. Um, sort of what miraculous healings it recognizes. Mm, that's great. By way of coming to a close, um, we've talked about the idea that the church was, <laughs> I love the way you put it in some of your writing, that it was a moribund branch of the state bureaucracy. And you've mm -hmm. kind of talked about how that's actually not the case. Um, but you do also deal in your writing 
with this idea that religious factors don't need to be included in general histories, specifically of, of war or, or revolution in Russia. Could you spend the last couple, maybe a minute or two or five or mm-hmm. however long you want to take here and reflect on how important religion was, not just in responding to historical changes, but in driving forward what we see as a period of tremendous cultural change at the end of the Russian Empire? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for the question, because I think this is um, you know, a very important perspective that historians in the last generation have 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 tried to drive home, which is that uh, that religion is not just a, a reflection of other more important factors, but that it, it can be, uh, as you say, a driving for, force, uh, a, a, an agent of change in, in societies, and a, thus a historical factor. Um, and I think that the I think that there's a couple of ways in which I, I I really think that religion needs to be worked into standard narratives of late imperial and revolutionary Russia. Um, the first is that is is precisely this whole this whole uh, the way in which religion was fundamentally uh, and debates about religious, uh, difference and religious choice was fundamentally uh, tied into the broader discussions about the individual, about civil society, about um, about uh, the the uh, democracy and socialism in Russian society, late imperial Russian society. That religion is is a place where people are trying out some of these ideas, or where others perceive people who don't, who don't necessarily perceive themselves as doing this, as trying out questions of, of, of um, new kinds of social organization about whether Western ideas are suitable for ordinary Russian people, all kinds of ideas that are being worked out through people's individual religious choices. Um, and and the the, the debate uh, religion is integral to the debates about about the what is what it means to be a Russian uh, Russian nationality Russia and what it means to be a, a good patriotic Russian the Russian state and its character so I think it's fundamental actually to the great debates of the late imperial period. Um, but if we need proof that uh, religion is, um, is is quite simply a constitutive factor of of of, of change in the imperial in the late imperial and, and revolutionary period, I think we can look no further than what happened with the collapse of the monarchy in February of 1917. Um, the the first point is to say that the church did not stand up for the Tsar. The official church um, uh, said um, goodbye when the Tsar <laughs> abdicated. And the next morning got to, got to work uh, reforming itself and got to work uh, getting on with the things that it wanted to do. And the main thing that the church wanted to do was to call a, a great church council 
to rethink the relationship between the church and the state and the relationships within the church between the the, 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 the bishops and the parish clergy and the laity and to reorganize the church for uh, the modern world. And so um, right, almost immediately after the collapse of the, of the empire, the, 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 the church council was called and it met uh, in Moscow um, starting in August of 1917 and was, was going right through during the revolution of October and uh, into early 1918 during the revolutionary days. And, but for me, what's so important is to see that in the spring and summer of 1917, uh, after this, the, the council had been called, all over the country, the local dioceses met to choose their uh, their representatives to the uh, to the council. The bishops had initially thought of a council that would involve just bishops. Uh, the the parish priests had pushed, and and then the parish priests were included. The laity had pushed, and then the laity were included. And so by this had been talked about for quite a few years before. But but when so in the in the spring of 1917, local dioceses are choosing their representatives, and there is a great revolution that is going on in the church, and people are transforming the church from below into a democratic organization. There are, there are dioceses that, that ejected their bishops and voted for bishops, which was not canonical, <laughs> unheard of. But we can see how, how people are living out the implications of that democratic revolution of February 1917 in their church life. And, and that that is, in fact, their first experience. They're not having elections yet, you know, for the, for the Constituent Assembly uh, in the spring of 1917. People are, are, are living this out in their church communities first. Uh, and these are people of all social groups who are doing this because the church incorporates all social groups. And so I, I really think that, that the way that the church um, is having its own revolution that is part of this broader revolution of 1917 is, is really a clear example, uh, a, a clear evidence of how uh, we cannot write the history of uh, late Imperial Russia or the Russian Revolution without considering the religious component. Um, and that's just the Orthodox Church. Um, all of these other groups are also similarly uh, active and exploring uh, in 1917 and, and uh, putting themselves on, on, the, on the choice, the list of choices. Everybody is coming out in 1917 and offering their answer to how to save Russia what Russia needs. And all of these religious groups are participating in that conversation. Mm, beautiful. Well, Heather, thank you so much. That's all I have for us. Okay. Well, thank you for your great questions. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. 
The political power of nationalism, including its ability to mobilize much stronger armed forces, was evident quite quickly to politicians. Um, and so you have all of these pre-national multi-ethnic states, the Habsburg Empire, the Romanov dynasty, the Ottoman Empire, all of them are trying to nationalize themselves over the course of the 19th century. And so their problem is, in a multi-ethnic state, as all of them are, as Russia certainly is, they either have to figure out how to fashion a multi-ethnic national project, that is to say a nation that is not founded on a single ethnicity, or to engage in building ethnic nationalism. In fact, Russia tried to do both. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com slash unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>